There's everything here. All the male entertainment cassettes, a new batch of movies. Yo, the new Friday the 13th movie. Friday the 13th, part 1649. <laughs> Look, Casablanca. They've remade Casablanca. Philistines. I mean, how can you remake Casablanca? The one starring Myra Bingleback and Peter Beardsley was definitive. Yeah, <laughs> Knockout. Of all the space bars in all the worlds, you had to rematerialize in mine. Warning, warning. Today's episode contains spoilers. So if you have not seen the movie or TV show that we are talking about, we highly recommend that you watch it first, then listen to this episode. Thank you. What kind of a sick school is this? Surely you can't be serious. I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. You got spunk. I hate spunk. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. Oh, righty then. How you doing? Back off, man. I'm a scientist. Don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. Say hello to my little friend. I love to celebrate come in the morning. What are you people? On dope? Stop whining. I got a crap on deck that can choke a donkey. Hey! Who is your daddy? I'm sorry, but all questions must be submitted in writing. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Can I do that? I'll be back. A dynamite! Show me the money! Don't! Up your nose with you have a hole. A what? I'm sailing! I'm sailing! Groovy. You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it. Pull it down. Love means never having to say you're sorry. Here's looking at you, kid. We got no food, we got no jobs, our pets' heads are falling off! Come on to the coast, we get together, have a few laughs. Hear that, Elizabeth? I'm coming to join you, honey! I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. I love it when a plan comes together. What we do is if we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do? Put it up to 11. 11, exactly. One louder. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. We're on a mission from God. Hello and welcome to our special Valentine's episode of Then Is Now Podcast. I am your host, Rigor. As we approach Valentine's Day 2021, all you guys listening are probably looking for something unique to regale your woman with as a Valentine's gift. We'll look no further than the movies. While there are many great romantic films, probably the greatest of them all is Casablanca from 1942, starring Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman. It's the tale of a man with a mysterious past who runs a bar in World War II Casablanca, a crossroads for spies, traitors, Nazis, and the French resistance. Into his bar walks a woman from Rick's past, which reopens his old wounds and starts to tear away at his veneer of neutrality and indifference. Casablanca is one of those movies that we here at Then Is Now consider required viewing. You should see it if you haven't already, and you should revisit it again, then listen to our analysis if you have seen it. Filmmaker Chris Esper joins me as we dive into this classic romantic drama and discuss it in great detail. Class is in session. 
I have a bad feeling about this. How could I possibly be expected to handle school on a day like this? Hey, you in my class? I am today. I think you should consider transferring to shock class. Whoa, whoa! Now, now, very few students are severely injured in shock class. Bueller. When you were in school. Bueller. Did you ever cut class? Bueller. Yeah, I guess I did. Sure, most kids cut classes. Good, sign this. Um, he's sick. I get so lonely when I hear that third attendance bell oh, ring and all my kids are not here. Seven years of college down the drain. Fat, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life, sir. You lack discipline. As long as I'm here, there will be no grades or gold stars or demerits. We're gonna have recess all the time. Woo! Go, play and have fun now! Happy Valentine's 2021, folks. I'm joined once again by filmmaker Chris Esper. How are you doing, Chris? Uh, doing very well. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Excellent. Folks, today we are going to discuss one of my favorite films, Casablanca from 1942. This is one of those films that gets better and more intriguing with each subsequent viewing. And guys, pay attention to this one. If you want to buy Valentine's points with your lady, then show them Casablanca after listening to our discussion, and you'll really impress, impress them with the knowledge that you've learned. Casablanca, city of hope and despair, located in French Morocco in North Africa. The meeting place of adventurers, fugitives, criminals, refugees, lured into this danger-swept oasis by the hope of escape to the Americas. But they're all trapped, for there is no escape. Against this fascinating background is woven the story of an imperishable love and the enthralling saga of six desperate people, each in Casablanca, to keep an appointment with destiny. Play it, Sam. You must remember this. A kiss is just a kiss. A sigh is just a sigh. The fundamental things of life. You can't get away. Don't hide me. Do something. You must help me. I stick my neck out for nobody. Wise foreign policy. And when two lovers woo, they still say I love you. On that you Why did you come back? To tell me why you ran out on me at the railway station? Yes. You can tell me now. I'm reasonably sober. There is a man who arrived in Casablanca on his way to America. He will offer a fortune to anyone who'll furnish him with an exit visa. Well, what's his name? Victor Laszlo. It's still the same. It's perhaps a strange circumstance. We both should be in love with the same woman. A case of do or die. The world will always welcome lovers as time goes by. He's looking at you, kid. In December 1941, American expatriate Rick Blaine owns a nightclub and gambling den in Casablanca. Rick's Café Americaine attracts a varied clientele, including Vichy French and German officials, refugees desperate to reach the neutral United States, and those who prey on them. Although Rick professes to be neutral in all matters, he ran guns to Ethiopia during the Second Italo-Ethiopian War and fought on the Republican Loyalist side in the Spanish Civil War. Petty Crook Ugart boasts to Rick of letters of transit obtained by murdering two German couriers. The papers allow the bearers to travel freely around German-occupied Europe and to neutral Portugal. 
They are priceless to the refugees stranded in Casablanca. Ugart plans to sell them at the club and asks Rick to hold them. Before he can meet his contact, Ugart is arrested by the local police under the command of Captain Louis Renault, the unabashedly corrupt prefect of police. Ugart dies in custody without revealing that he entrusted the letters to Rick. Then the reason for Rick's cynical nature former lover Ilsa Lund, enters his establishment. Spotting Rick's friend and house pianist Sam, Ilsa asks him to play as time goes by. Rick storms over, furious that Sam disobeyed his order never to perform that song, and is stunned when he sees Ilsa. She's accompanied by her husband, Victor Laszlo, a renowned fugitive Czech resistance leader. They need the letters to escape to America to continue his work. Major Strasser has come to Casablanca to thwart him. When Laszlo makes inquiries, Ferrari, an underworld figure and Rick's friendly business rival, divulges his suspicion that Rick has the letters. Privately, Rick refuses to sell at any price, telling Laszlo to ask his wife the reason. They are interrupted when Strasser leads a group of officers in singing Die Wacht am Rhein, which is the Watch on the Rhine, the German national anthem. Laszlo orders the house band to play La Marseillaise. When the band looks to Rick, he nods his head. Laszlo starts singing, alone at first, then patriotic fervor grips the crowd and everyone joins in, drowning out the Germans. Strasser demands Renault close the club, which he does on the pretext of suddenly discovering that there is gambling going on in the premises. Ilsa confronts Rick in the deserted cafe. When he refuses to give her the letters, she threatens him with a gun, but then confesses that she still loves him. She explains that when they met and fell in love in Paris in 1940, she believed her husband had been killed, attempting to escape from a concentration camp. While preparing to flee with Rick from the city during the Battle of France, she learned Laszlo was still alive and in hiding. She left Rick without explanation to nurse her sick husband. Rick's bitterness dissolves. He agrees to help, letting her believe that she will stay with him when Laszlo leaves. When Laszlo unexpectedly shows up, having narrowly escaped a police raid on a resistance meeting, Rick has waiter Carl spirit Ilsa away. Laszlo, aware of Rick's love for Ilsa, tries to persuade him to use the letters to take her to safety. When the police arrest Laszlo on a trumped-up charge, Rick persuades Renault to release him by promising to set him up for a much more serious crime possession of the letters. To allay Renault's suspicions, Rick explains that he and Ilsa will be leaving for America. When Renault tries to arrest Laszlo as arranged, Rick forces him at gunpoint to assist in their escape. At the last moment, Rick makes Ilsa board the plane to Lisbon with Laszlo, telling her that she would regret it if she stayed. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon and for the rest of your life. Strasser, tipped off by Renault, drives up alone and Rick shoots him when he tries to intervene. As the police arrive, Renault pauses then orders them to round up the usual suspects. He suggests to Rick that they join the Free French in Brazzaville. As they walk away into the fog, Rick says, Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. So, Chris, uh, when did you first see this film? I first saw this film um, when it aired on uh, Turner Classic Movies um, years ago. I think I was maybe 14 or 15 years old, and I was sort of going through that phase of being a film buff where I had to see... You know, movies that were considered great. You know, I wanted to see, you know, the movie that was considered greatest of all time and all that sort of thing. So it was always this movie and Citizen Kane always topped those lists of like greatest movies ever made. So I saw both of them back to back. So I remember seeing this on TCM and uh, being pretty enthralled by it upon first viewing. Been a fan ever since. Yeah, I had heard of this when I was a kid. I, I may have seen scenes here and there. And, you know, so much of the dialogue was in the pop culture by then that I was familiar enough with it. But it really wasn't until I went to film school that I saw it in one of my classes and I, sure. I totally fell in love with it. it. Same thing with Citizen Kane, as you said. It was yeah, um, just seeing these films. They're so great and so powerful on so many levels. And, you know, I, I agree with you that these are films that everyone needs to see, especially Casablanca. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, yeah, it was either the movie was topping the list or the dialogue, and you know, certainly, and certainly, you know, many people will misquote saying "played against Sam," which of course is never said in the movie. But uh, right. uh, <laughs> but uh, but but nonetheless, it's become a pop culture thing that people have quoted it. People have, you know, parodied it certainly, uh, and. Uh, you know, I would argue too. It's even one of the first, if not the first, film noir. So it even made a made a whole genre out of it. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. It's continuously ranked by respected sources as being among the top five movies ever made. Sure. So, and there's a reason for that. You know, we'll, we'll talk about it um, in great detail here. Uh, so the film was directed by Michael Curtis, which was based on an unproduced stage play by Murray Burnett, which was called Everybody Comes to Rick's. And Curtis was a Hungarian-born filmmaker. He started off making movies in Austria and Germany. They came to America in 1926, and he made quite a few films for Warner Brothers, many of which are considered classics today, such as The Adventures of Robin Hood, The Charge of the Light Brigade, Dodge City, and, and Mildred Pierce, among many others. So I thought his directing was solid in this movie. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah, and the interesting thing about him is that uh, it was said that he had a very thick um, accent. I believe he was uh, hung- oh, he was Hungarian, so he, uh, he had a yeah. very thick Hungarian accent. So there's a story that uh, uh, one day he asked a prop man, oh, uh, in his accent, uh, um, to get him a poodle for the scene. The prop man is looking around for a poodle. Finally, he finds one. He goes, no. He goes, no, a poodle. A poodle of water. He meant to say puddle of water, apparently. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's it, it just like, you know, so, I mean, it's great to, you know, hear those kind of stories. But, yeah, no, I mean, this is one of the best directed films I've ever seen. Yeah, exactly. I, I heard that, that poodle story as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one thing I, I really loved about uh, this film is... The, the camera moves quite often, but it's so subtle that you don't even notice it. Yeah, it is very subtle, and uh, and it works really well. And the lighting, too, is uh, gorgeous throughout. Um, I particularly love one of the opening scenes where Rick is uh, grabbing money from the vault, and then you just see a shadow on the wall as he's talking to Claude Rains' character. It's just beautifully, beautifully lit, beautifully photographed, whole nine yards. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The film was written by um, a couple of twins, Julius and Philip Epstein, and a guy named Howard Koch. And um, let's get into our cast here. So, of course, we've got the famous, the great, the amazing Humphrey Bogart as Rick Blaine. And he is really, in my book, he's one of the greatest Hollywood actors of all time. I mean, oh yeah, you know, we could do a whole show on him. Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's been in such movies as The Maltese Falcon, which I think... I think they did that one just before this one, like the year Correct. before. Correct, yep. Treasure of the Sierra Madre, The Cane Mutiny, The Return of Dr. X, African Queen. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Sure. One thing I, I found out in my research that I did not previously know, he went to Phillips Academy in Andover, Mass., which is kind of near us. It's really? near where I grew up. I, yeah. Wow. <laughs> but he got no expelled. Kidding. He got expelled. Oh, for what? <laughs> I, I didn't find out why, but um, he ended up joining the Navy after that. <laughs> Well, that's funny. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine he was probably a troublemaker when he was yeah, a kid. Yeah, I, I, I imagine so, yeah. So, but then he got into to acting, and um, they, they wanted George Raft to play this movie, but Hal Wallace, who was the head of uh, Warner, uh, Warner Brothers at the time, really liked Bogart and wanted him in the lead. And, and it's actually to Bogart's advantage because... Um, Charles Raft, uh, I'm sorry, George Raft made a few bad career choices where he turned down High Sierra and the Maltese Falcon, and Bogart got the leads in those. So he really <laughs> oh, wow. lucked out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
And he's great in this. He's so cool. I mean, even one little tiny element that made me think of Han Solo was where he mentions that he's got a price on his head. Oh, you know? yeah. Yep. So that just adds to his coolness. And even like the establishing shot when they first you first see him and the camera's kind of... You don't really see him at all until he's he's just off screen you see his hand and his cigarette and um i forget who it was peter laurie or somebody came up to him and then the camera's focused on him he grabs a cigarette and it follows his hand up and then you see humphrey bogart oh yeah no it's great and the interesting thing is in that scene as he is playing chess um (laughs) i I come to find out that uh he actually that was a real game he was playing with a friend from new york they were played by mail where where one person would write saying okay this is my move and then they would mail the letter back and do the move so that was a real game he was playing with with a friend in new york that's awesome that's so amazing (laughs) that's so funny then of course we've got the beautiful ingrid bergman as ilsa lund and um, her website calls her, or her official website calls her the most famous and enduring role of the character, Ilsa. And I, I'd say I agree with that. Um, yeah. You, she's a Swedish actress. Her first movie was called Intermezzo, which had been well received, but her subsequent films weren't huge successes until Casablanca. And uh, even right. Roger Ebert called her luminous. And, and um, he loved the, the chemistry between her and Bogart. He said he, she paints her face with she paints his face with her eyes, which I thought was yes. a great quote. Yes, she is also one of the most Oscar awarded actresses. She tied with Meryl Streep, and both of them are second only to Katherine Hepburn. And one thing I, I found interesting to learn, which I always thought she was related to the director Ingmar Bergman, but there's I thought so too. No relation. They're not no relation. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. We yeah we we would also be remiss to uh, mention that uh, she's one of. Uh, Hitchcock's uh, greatest uh, actresses that he's had uh, in some of his pictures, um, you know, like Notorious right. and Sp- Spellbound, yeah. Yeah, and Notorious had both Cary Grant and Claude Rains That's in right. the film, too. That's right, yeah. So she was also in, uh, I think it was from 1941's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Yes. So she had a, she had an amazing career. Mm-hmm. And we've, now, we've got an interesting actor here, Paul Heinried played Victor Laszlo, and he was an Austrian actor who had emigrated in 1935, and he was kind of reluctant to take the role until he was promised top billing with Bogey and Bergman, mm-hmm. but he didn't get along with them. He considered Bogart a mediocre actor. Yeah. Um, and Ingmar Bergman, or Ingrid Bergman called Heinrich a prima donna. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I heard that too. Yeah, that's, uh, that's too bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was kind of one of these bitter guys. You know, he thought being third billing after Bogey and Bergman would hurt his career. Would as hurt his leading career, right. Guy. Yeah. yeah. He had just starred opposite of Betty Davis in Now Voyager, and this to him was a step down. And he uh, supposedly he pouted during quite a bit of the shoot. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny you say. Actually, from what I understand, uh, even Bogart and Bergman were also not too keen on the material. On the material either, uh, they found the they found the whole the whole movie and the dialogue in particular to be ridiculous. Uh, so that seems to be the mood that that was felt throughout the entire shoot. Strangely enough. Well, that's the thing too is they were none of them knew how it was going to end. Yeah, and they were continually rewriting dialogue as it went. I as. I, yeah. I may have read it wrong, but I thought the script was basically unfinished when they went into production. Yes, it was unfinished. And uh, Michael Curtiz, uh, when, when, when directing the movie, the first scene that they shot, I don't mean to go off on a tangent here. No, but, it's fine. Uh, w- the first scene that they shot were the Paris scenes in which Bogey and Bergman are, you know, they're in the room together doing the here's looking at you kid uh, scenes, things of that nature. Yeah. And so 
they're doing the scenes and Bergman had no idea if she was supposed to be in love with Victor Laszlo or she's supposed to be in love with Rick's, with, uh, with the character of Rick. And so Kurt Tease just simply told her to, to play it in the middle, to play it in between, because he had no idea either because the script wasn't finished. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think that worked to the advantage because she really doesn't know who she wants to be with throughout the film, and you can see that on her face. Right, right. And, of course, we've got Claude Rains as Captain mm -hmm. Louis Renault, And, of course, we know him from The Invisible Man and Phantom mm -hmm. of the Opera. And, you know, he's just another great actor that someday we're just going to do a whole show on his Absolutely. career. Absolutely, yeah. Conrad uh, Veit was Major Heinrich Strasser. He was a refugee German actor who had fled the Nazis with his Jewish wife. Um, but he ended up frequently playing Nazis in American films. Mm. But he, he was definitely an outspoken anti-fascist and was pretty much the highest paid member of the cast, despite his second billing. Yeah, and, and uh, um, for, for those who are, like, you know, true film buffs, uh, he's also, he also plays uh, the lead in The Man Who Laughs, um, one yep. of the great uh, pre-Universal horror movies from 1928. Yep, and The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari as yes. well. Yes, mm-hmm. And I, I think The Man Who Laughs is one of the things that uh, Bob Kane and Bill Finger credited as the creation of the Joker in the That's Batman right. comics. Yep. And it's easy, to, it's easy to see that. You know, I mean, obviously, you know, uh, I mean, one day we could do a whole show about that. Because, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's a great yeah. movie. Great movie as well. I mean, yeah, everything about the makeup of that character. Yeah, very much Joker-esque. Yeah, yeah. And this was um, Veidt's second-to-last film, and he died at age 50 in 1943. And when he was cast in the film, though, he did demand that if he was going to play one of the Germans, he was going to portray him as viciously as possible because he wanted to really get a, his message across just how much opposed to the National Socialist Germans Worker Party he was. So I think wow. he succeeds here. <laughs> he, does, he does succeed. As a matter of fact, a lot of the actors that were playing Nazis were escaped Jews from Nazi Germany, from what I've come to learn. That's right. More than half the cast. I mean, it was more than really, half the cast. Yeah, was it? It was Bogey and Sidney Greenstreet and one other that were uh, non-Europeans. Right. Exactly. I think that added to the longevity of the film too. It gave it an authenticity where they really were Europeans. It wasn't, you know, uh, Americans having uh, you know white actors pretend yeah. to be other races. These were real people from these countries. Absolutely, and same with the uh, the watch on the rain uh, scene. Uh, those were real refugees who were in real tears uh, yes. during during that scene, and it was and that makes that moment all the more beautiful. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And of course, we mentioned Sidney Greenstreet. He plays Signor Ferrari. He ran a brewery in real life, but to escape boredom, he decided to take acting lessons. And, and his first role uh, was when he was 62 years old. He weighed nearly 300 pounds. He played Casper Gutman in The Maltese Falcon in the year prior, mm -hmm. 1941, with, yep. of course, Humphrey Bogart and Peter Lorre. And I didn't know this. I mean, I knew they had acted together, but he teamed up with Peter Lorre in eight more movies after that. I did not know that. That's, that's fascinating. Yeah. Wow. And in, in eight years, he made 24 films, all while fighting diabetes and Bright's disease. And then in 1949, he retired from films and died four years later when he was 75 years old. Wow. So for such a short career, he left a, a pretty lasting uh, legacy. Without a doubt, yeah. And then, of course, Peter Lorre as mm -hmm. Senor Ugate. Ugate. Yep. He's another one of these classic actors that we got to do a whole show on. I mean, yeah. so many great parts. You know, Fritz Lang's M. Hitchcock's sure. The Man Who Knew Too Much, Mad Love, the uh, the Mr. Moto series, and uh, as well as, you know, a bunch of those uh, Roger Corman, uh, Edgar Allan Poe flicks with Vincent Price. Right, and of course, um, I believe he was also in um, uh, The Invisible Agent, if I remember correctly. Yes. Yes, he was. He was the Japanese guy, yep. Right, yeah. 
um, he's another one of those actors that actually ended up, even though he wasn't American, he played a lot of uh, races that he wasn't, like Japanese. And, yes. you know, Mr. Moto, I think, was Japanese also. Yes. And then uh, I just wanted to mention briefly uh, Dooley Wilson, who played Sam. Uh, he acted in several movies in the TV series, and but his music was used in over 27 films since Casablanca. And I just loved his character because he was so loyal to Rick. He was such a good friend to him, you know. He's probably one of my favorite characters throughout the whole thing, and uh, as well as the music that uh, he plays is just beautiful. I can listen, I can listen to the music of of this movie all day. Oh, absolutely! Did you know he actually didn't know how to play the piano? He played the guitar. That's right. I did hear that. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so they they had someone else he, on, like just off camera playing. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've heard there were some shots where he's fake playing it, and they just dubbed over the sound. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's great. <laughs> Greetings, this is Mr. Lobo. Are you a sinsomniac? Do you stay up late and watch what normal people call bad movies till dawn? Black and white low-budget potboilers, box office bombs, West German talking car movies, rock bands versus monster movies, broken down school films, midget zombie and midget spy flicks, guys in gorilla suit movies, even old TV commercials, inappropriate cartoons, drive-in snack bar ads, and worse? <clears throat> well, we like to say they're not bad movies just misunderstood stay up late with miss mittens your host mr lobo and a revolving door of special guests fellow horror movie hosts robot monsters and lovely real seven girls for a late night tv slumber party that we call cinema insomnia you can watch us on channel osi 74 for roku we even have some episodes on amazon and alpha video dvd you may never get a good night's sleep again Hello, this is Rod Barnett. I'm the host of The Bloody Pit, the podcast that examines films from across the decades. On The Bloody Pit, we have several ongoing series of shows within the show focused on specific things in genre cinema that I and my co-hosts find fascinating. There's a long-running series focused on Italian maestro Antonio Margheriti's films from the 1960s all the way up through 1990. There's an on-again, off-again series focused on 1970s science fiction films. There's an in-depth look at the Western movies that William Castle made before he struck out on his own and became the horror auteur that we know and love. A look at the classic Coffin Joe films from Brazil. And our long-term project to look at every universal horror film made in the 1940s. That's a long project, people. It's going to take us a long time. Sprinkled in amongst those are various other episodes focused on other stranger areas of cinema, like uh, Lucio Fulci, Dario Argento, and even some obscure British crime films from time to time. So join me and my rotating crew of co-hosts as we examine the stranger side of cinema through an exploitation lens. Except when we don't? Yeah, you never really know exactly what to expect on The Bloody Pit. So join me for The Bloody Pit. Rise and shine, my sinners. When Father Evil starts his day, he gets a little deadly.
Deadly Grounds coffee has the richest, smoothest flavor you'll find anywhere. It's sinfully delicious. Once you go deadly, you never go back. Order yours at getdeadly.com. Coffee's so good, it's scary. the 50s jukeboxes hot rods malt shops and sock hops no not really oh well do you remember that tv show happy days you know fonzie and richie and all like that a sit on it etc kind of then join us for these days are ours a happy days podcast where we watch every episode and give you the lowdown on what it all means Find us at thesedaysareours.libsyn.com and follow us on Twitter at Fonzie Podcast. Be there or be square. You're sure you don't remember Sock Hops? Sorry, no. Okay, then. So, and, you know, when they made this movie, they really didn't... They didn't think it was going to be all that much. They just thought this is just another movie that we're churning out. And somehow, being this mashup of... You know, the the themes in the film, you know, the old song, half a dozen European actors, a script full of cynical dialogue, uh, you know, ethical uncertainty. Into t- mashing it together into a two-hour movie is really somehow was a recipe for success. Right. So it, it's just amazing. And they, like I said, you know, like you said earlier, they... They all had doubts about this movie because the script wasn't finished. and Oh, sure. It just somehow worked. It did somehow work. And, you know, it's funny. Uh, when you watch a movie like this today and then, you know, versus back then, you know, the, 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 uh, everything about it is just so different. Like even uh, I read some facts somewhere that during the 1980s, the, the films, the, uh, the script for this movie under its original title of Everybody Comes to Rick's, was sent to readers and production companies, and every person who read the script felt that it wouldn't make a good movie, that it was too dated, that it was too much dialogue, and not enough sex. So it really shows how much times have changed from when this movie was made to the 1980s to even today when people watch it. It's incredible. Right, I agree. And um, I guess the final budget on this was uh, $1.39 million. And uh, it was a lot more than Warner Brothers would have spent because Mm -hmm. on on an A movie because it went eleven days over uh, budget. Mm -hmm. But and I mean twenty thousand of that just went to them buying the um, the Everybody Comes to Rick's script. Right. So and it was really only luck. It was literally like the day after Pearl Harbor that they decided to go go with it because they wanted patriotic stories. And that's one of the things too I wanted to bring up that it sets this movie apart from. Films that would come after it because it's not necessarily a rah-rah pro-America movie because at this point, America was still just on the brink of joining the war. That's right. So it was a great way of sort of presenting what was going on in the world, especially at that time. It was very timely. It was very timely. And, you know, the movie is just filled with pure patriotism. But at the same time, uh, it's also a love story, a beautiful love story. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, the whole, you know, if you follow the film and the whole um, the whole arc of Rick's character, and he really wants to be with Ilsa. And I, I had heard that they, they were going to do an alternate ending where she stays with him, but that wouldn't have worked, I think, because yeah, him being noble and sending her away is the core of the film. That's what makes it work. 
Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, and throughout the whole movie, he says he sticks his neck out for no one and that he's neutral. I think had she stayed with him, it would have uh, it, it, it wouldn't have justified anything that happened prior to that. I agree. I agree. And, this, you know, there's a lot of... Well, let's back up here for a second. So when she dumps him in France, he's mm-hmm. just devastated, and he ends up putting up this wall or this facade that that's his motto. I, I yeah. don't stick my neck out for nobody. And... He's just going to be completely neutral. But there are little clues along the way that shows that he's not quite as neutral as you might think. Like sure. when he's sitting in the back room there and what was it? The the head of the German bank yes. wanted to come in and he wouldn't let him in. Yes. You know, and he, he takes the, the, the papers from Peter Laurie. He helps out people here and there. He's doing things subtly, but it's really not till she comes back. Ilsa comes back that sort of those walls start to break away and he can't maintain it anymore. Right, right. So I just thought, and I just thought that was so well presented in their acting that it just came across so perfectly. It was, and I mean, again, that's it. I attribute that a lot to Bogart because he plays it totally cool throughout the entire thing where he doesn't at all in any time manipulate the viewer into feeling for him we just naturally feel for him and it's just and it's it's subtle but it's great oh yeah absolutely you are kind of rooting for him through the whole film but right you know it was interesting too because him and uh, ingrid bergman had great on-screen chemistry but they had some issues i guess because like she tried she watched maltese falcon several times before making this movie just to get an idea of who bogey was Mm -hmm. but they never actually in real life they never really connected i think there was even one point where his real life wife at the time thought he was cheating on her with Ingrid Bergman. yeah they hardly ever spoke to each other yeah no they hardly spoke yeah yeah no yeah no they hardly spoke to each other yeah (laughs) but he had some inadequacies too because he was so short, and they had already, I guess they'd already cast everybody and didn't realize that she was like two inches taller than him. Right. So he would have to wear platform shoes at certain points, and, um, <laughs> and she was just so beautiful that I think Bogey was somewhat intimidated oh, yeah. by this role. So it was hard for him to really connect with her because he was holding back. Right, exactly. But you know what? In a way, that worked because that just added, right. to, it added to the wall that this character had built up. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, and it's amazing, like, this film that they didn't think was going to go anywhere um, was nominated for eight Oscars, and it won three of them, including oh, Best yeah. Picture. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I mean, again, we talked about Citizen Kane before. Citizen Kane, I don't believe, did win any Oscars, if I remember correctly. So, I mean, it just really shows how this how this movie was able to stand the test of time. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, one thing I found interesting in my research was they, um, the end scene takes place at the airport, but they couldn't actually shoot at an airport because they were afraid that if there were enemy planes flying overhead, the lights would yep. give them away. Yep. So they used like cardboard planes and they had midgets in the background to pretend to be, you know, actual people working in, in the, um, you know, on the tarmac there. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So... I just thought that was a great cheat because I didn't even really until like I watched it two uh, two times over the last couple of days and I didn't really notice it until the second viewing that the planes were fake. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I didn't notice it either. But uh, uh, but you know, it's fun again. It's fun to always spot those like practical effects that they did at that time. Right, right, and yeah. they, they did them so well. I just I, there's something to be said about pl- practical effects, and I think we've discussed this before. Oh yeah. That, they're just so good. Even sometimes yeah. if they look cheesy, they just work so well. It works, yeah. One thing that's interesting, too, about the song, As Time Goes By, 
mm-hmm. I guess um, the composer, Max Steiner, didn't like it, and he wanted uh, to replace it with one of his own love songs. But they couldn't reshoot the scene with Ingrid Bergman and Sam because she had already cut her hair short for her next role, which I think was For Whom the Bell Tolls. Yeah. And so they basically couldn't reshoot it, and, and they kept the song. Wow. <laughs> Which is perfect, because that, that's such a great song. I mean, every time I hear that song, I, I think of this movie. Yeah, same here. Yeah, it just takes me back. Um, same with uh, Knock on Wood. I love that opening song. Yes. Yeah, that's a good one, too. Yes. The, I did find, you know, they, they did it. Like some movies from this time period where you'll have a musical interlude, it doesn't necessarily work. Like even in some of the Marx Brothers movies, it gets to, to be almost uncomfortable. Right. But in this movie, I thought every scene that had music in it worked perfectly. I thought so too, yeah. I thought that was one of the great things about this movie, along with its photography, uh, was the music. Um, yeah, a lot of it works well from, from, from the music that's actually coming from the scene to the composed pieces. Right. And, you know, it's interesting too, is like the, the, the phrases used in the movie, I find some of them, I find are, how do I phrase this? I feel like they, they work for the scene, but they're more left up to interpretation. Mm-hmm. Like, all right, so here's looking at you, kid. I guess, now I've heard, I read different reports, conflicting reports, where this came from. But one of the ones I saw was that um, the director heard uh, Bogey saying it to Ingrid Bergman when they were, when they were between filming. Yeah. And he thought that that should be in the film. Is that what you heard? Uh, yeah, I heard, I heard that Bogey uh, just uh, improvised it and they kept it in the movie. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Because that, that's one of those phrases that, what does that actually mean? Yeah, you know, I don't... I, that that's one of those phrases I can't really put my finger on as to what it what exactly it means. Right, right. Just like um, when he's talking to um, her and Laszlo, and he's talking about how they knew each other in France, and he goes, "Oh, I remember it well. Uh, the Germans wore gray, and you wore blue." Yeah. I mean, so is that? See, that to me, that's like left up to interpretation for the audience because I interpret that to mean that he was kind of speaking beyond. Like he remembered their affair very well, yes. like a great amount of detail. Right. Yeah, that's how I would interpret it as well. That's the thing about the dialogue throughout the movie is that there is so much subtext, uh, you know, and uh, there were a few times I actually would rewind the movie so I could hear a piece of dialogue again to see if I I was hearing it correctly and, you know, kind of get a sense of what they were trying to say. Particularly the Claude Rains character, he has so much subtextual dialogue, uh, it's fun to listen to. Oh, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and even though you you want to like him, he's kind of scummy. He is kind of scummy, <laughs> <You know>? yeah. <laughs> but he but but he, but he's scummy in a very friendly way, oddly enough, because like he's he's just such a gentleman and very polite, but yet he says things very scummy and uh, but always with a smile. <laughs> right, right, yeah. It's just so funny. Like there was what was the one scene where I think it was like one of his assistants or something comes in and says. Um, oh, we're having another issue with the um, with the passports or something, and he uh-huh. starts to to button up his tie, and he's like, uh-huh. "Oh, good, you know, send her in." <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and you know, and, and just some of the other things, like like when he first meets um, Bergman's character and Victor Lazo, he's sitting at the table and he's saying how beautiful Bergman's character is, and saying. And, and then, you know, they're talking about uh, Bogey. And uh, at one point he says something to the effect of, well, if I were a woman, you know, I would, I would swoon over him or something like that. I was like, I was like, that's just so, it's so bizarre, but it's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I guess they did, they, they had a lot of fighting with the, with the, um, the uh, movie ratings board at the time about some of their dialogue. They had yeah. tools. I don't have anything specific, but. 
One line that was uh, in question, uh, now that you mentioned that, was uh, at one point, Claude Rain says, uh, instead of saying, I like women, he was told to say, I enjoy women instead uh, for decency sake. I'm like, huh, okay, interesting. <laughs> hmm, that sounds a little more, <laughs> a little worse than I like women. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah and that's that was my feeling as well, yeah. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. He's got another great line too where... Um, he, he's disappointed that Rick let that young couple win at the roulette table and so they could yes. actually pay for their visas instead of her having to have sex with him. Right. And he goes, well, I'll be in tomorrow with a very breathtaking blonde and I'll be happy if she loses. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, he really does have some of the more funnier lines. You're at the end where Bogey's holding the gun to him uh, and he says, I'll shoot you or whatever. Uh, I, I forgot what spot. And then <laughs> Claude Rain says, that's my, that's my most vulnerable spot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh so funny such a great yeah. movie like it, almost every line of dialogue is is just so quotable i love it it really is and you know uh again going back to what we said earlier about um how it's it's perceived to have too much dialogue and to be too dated i i personally think this is a master class in screenwriting if a screenwriter really wants to learn about writing and about dialogue this is a movie to watch because it's just filled with great dialogue Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. You know, even R Renault, as we were just talking about, he makes no bones about about who he is because he, he makes the bet with uh, with Rick about whether or not Laszlo is going to escape Casablanca. And Rick bets him 20 grand and he goes, make it 10 grand. I'm yes, only a poor, corrupt official. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and, you know, and just some of his sarcasm, like when Rick decides to uh, not, not only sit down and have a drink, with, uh, with Bergman and with Victor Lazo, because he—that's another thing about Bogey's character. He never drinks with customers. That—that's one of the right. other things that's established. And so he sits down to have a drink, and then he pay. Then he pays for the bill, and both times, uh, Claude Rains uh, says, "Oh, a precedent has been set." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that was cool too, because that just showed they had known each other for a while. You know, it gave, it gave yeah. expository information without giving expository information, you know? Yeah, exactly. I like when Rick says to Ugarte, you know, I don't mind a parasite. I object to a cut rate one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Because Peter Laurie's character was going to, you know, he was going to sell papers at a cheaper price than the regular normal, whoever the guy is that normally sells the papers and, you know, the visas. <laughs> exactly, Yeah. <laughs> Oh, man, there's so many good things about this movie. You know, there's one funny scene, too. Again, getting back to Renault, I think he was a really funny character. And, yeah. you know, he's with, um, he's telling Laszlo, basically, he's going to keep him in Casablanca. And Laszlo accuses Renault of being controlled by the Nazis. And Re Renault says, the Nazis don't control me. I'm the master of my own fate. And then, of course, a Nazi soldier comes in and tells Renault that Strasser wants to see him. And he goes to leave. And Laszlo That's mutters, right. you were saying? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, no, it's great. It's great stuff. It, yeah, he, for me, he stole the show as far as humor goes throughout yeah. this movie. Because there, you know, because there, there are, you know, people forget that there are some funny moments throughout this movie. It's not just this, uh, it's not, it's not just uh, some uh, weepy romance drama. Oh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Yeah. And it, that's one of those themes, too, is the, the loyalties is a major theme in this film. It's like, you know, uh, Bogey or Rick, you don't really know where his loyalties lie, but you kind of little by little start to figure it out. But, yeah. you know, Renault, on the other hand, he, his loyalties fly with the wind. He'll go with whoever's paying him the most or whoever's not going to kill him. Right. You know, exactly. I think yeah. that was really interesting. It was. Uh, and the scene where 
This is one of those things, too. I mentioned at the beginning that you kind of have to see this movie more than once to really get the full impact because the scene where Ilsa's talking to Sam and basically makes him play as time goes by, and then Rick hears it from a distance and he comes barging in and he's about to yell at Sam for playing it. I thought I told you never to play that song here. Right. And then he sees her, and when the camera pans up and you see them lock eyes... You don't really get the impact of that till the second viewing because at that point, when you're watching it the second time, you now know what their backstory is. Mm-hmm. And that scene, to me, becomes way more powerful the second time you watch it. Oh, yeah. No, it does. And uh, I remember first seeing that and then, um, you know, the music swells as they look at each other. It's a powerful moment. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And uh, again, that just... I don't know how to phrase it, but it's just basically it shows you how you can watch this movie multiple times and really get something new out of it almost every time. You really can. I mean, I've seen this movie multiple times. Um, This was my first time in preparation for this. This was my first time watching it in a couple of years, I want to say. And uh, but it still felt fresh. It felt like I was just seeing it for the first time all over again. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and then another theme are how these characters are trying to uh, escape their past, you know, and the past keeps catching up to them. You know, every time Ilsa thinks one of the men in her life has died, they only, uh, you know, tend to reappear at the most inconvenient moment. Right. You know? Yeah. (laughs) And Rick sort of carved out this lifestyle for himself that he thinks is going to help him forget all these painful memories. And, but then everything starts to come back to him as soon as she shows up again. It does. And, you know, it's interesting, too, that he here he is. He built this uh, this establishment, this cafe. And you feel like for the character, not only is it uh, a way to have a new life, but he literally built himself a wall from which he could hide from the world. And right. it, makes right, that, yes. it makes that all the more uh, powerful in terms of the character development. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, just thinking about it now, it occurs to me that... I mean, he could have picked anywhere in the world to escape from this. And where does he pick? He picks the one place that's the crossroads for all these people trying to escape from Nazi Germany. Yes. And he offers a place to, to, that helps them, basically. He just doesn't want to know about it. You know, I think yes. even at one point, one of the guys is telling him about a meeting he's going to. and He's like, no, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to know. Right, right. <laughs> so he sets himself up in a place where he can help people without looking like he's helping people, if that makes sense. No, it makes perfect sense. I agree. I just I just love that about his character. It's just again, you know, watching it this time, that just added another layer to me that I hadn't really considered before. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, there is an argument and, you know, maybe you could weigh in on this. Um, would you agree that uh I mean I mean, would you say that there is such thing as a perfect movie? And if and if so, would you say this is a near perfect one? Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. I have a couple in mind that I think are perfect films and this has always been one of them. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. Yeah, because there's nothing, you know, t- to me, a perfect movie, there ha- there has to be little or no things that you could argue that are stupid or that wouldn't happen or anything. And you just don't sure. find that in this movie. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it's interesting because at the time of, again, making this, uh, you know, there were complaints that this is ridiculous, that this would never happen, this and that. But, right. uh, but I mean, and while that may or may not be true, you know, you just fall, you just fall in love with the fantasy of what's happening that, that, uh, that you don't even question it. You don't care. And it could very well happen. Right. And, you know, there was a couple of criticisms I read online too, about how you wouldn't have been at that time, you wouldn't have been able to get visas that would allow you to just travel freely yeah. throughout Europe or Germany specifically. And I think 
I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure I read that also around the time this film was released, the Allies had started rolling through Casablanca and were, you know, basically taking it over and getting rid of the Nazis. And they were almost going to redo some of it for it. And they were like, you know what, let's just go with it as it is. And uh, those two things don't bother me at all. I think it works fine for the movie. Yeah, I don't. That doesn't bother me either. I think it works just fine. And again, if anything, it just makes it more timely, particularly for that for that period. Right. Right. Um, another thing that seems to keep popping up in the movie too is luck. You know, Rick Rick has sort of different views of luck, and he you know, he intervenes to help that couple, the Brandells, so that they miraculously hit the jackpot twice. And you know, when Mrs. Brandell approaches him to thank him for his generous deed, he just dismisses her, and he's like, "You know, your husband's just a lucky guy." Yeah. You know, <laughs> and, and I, I thought there was double meaning in that because. Yeah, he was lucky at the roulette table, but that wasn't really true. I think metaphorically, it was true, meaning he was lucky enough to have such a courageous and loving wife. Yeah. So I, I just there were so many good little things in this movie. But then you know, uh, Sam tells Ilsa to stay away from Rick because she's bad luck to him. Oh yeah. You know. Yeah. It's and it's not that's not really true. I don't think. I mean, yeah, she broke his heart that he still hadn't recovered. You know, it was like what a year before that had happened. Yeah, something like that. But I think somewhere I read online, too, they were saying that luck in this case was simply a word that was used to, to cover up the, the more painful truths of what was going on. Yeah. So, and then, of course, Ugart, uh, he has a lot of unfortunate luck because he, fortunately, he finds those papers, but then, unfortunately, because of that, he's arrested and killed. He's arrested and killed, yep. <laughs> <laughs> I like when, when Renault says, yeah, we haven't decided whether he committed suicide or he was just shot. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, and then and then of course the you know of course the ending uh, you know where he says to round up the usual suspects and they walk off into the distance. It's just one of the great classic moments uh, in cinema. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. It's just it just this movie was just the perfect storm of all these things coming together at once and just you know worked so perfectly on so many levels. Oh yeah. Now I wanted to read a quote here from Roger Ebert, which um, I think he kind of sums it up perfectly here, and I, I don't think I could do a better job. He says, from a modern perspective, the film reveals interesting assumptions. Ilsa Lund's role is basically that of a lover and helpmate to a great man. The movie's real question is, which great man should she be sleeping with? There is actually no reason why Laszlo can't get on the plane alone, leaving Elsa in Casablanca with Rick, and indeed, that is one of the endings that was briefly considered. But that would be all wrong. The happy ending would be tarnished by self-interest, while the ending that we have allows Rick to be a larger, allows Rick to be larger to approach nobility. You know, and he says it doesn't take much to see that problems of three little people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. And it allows us vicariously to experience all of these things in the theater and to warm in the glows of his heroism. And I just feel that summed it up perfectly. That sums it up uh, perfectly. Yeah, there's really no other way to say it. <laughs> it's uh, yeah. No, it's perfect. Yeah. So, Chris, I think we, we've pretty much covered this so surprisingly quickly. I thought we would have more to talk about. But what are your final thoughts on Casablanca? Uh, I mean, again, I think it's a, a near-perfect movie, if not a perfect movie, as I uh, mentioned. And uh, it's definitely one to see if you haven't seen it. Uh, it's definitely one to watch again and again, because with every viewing, I feel like you get, again, you just get more detail. You find more out of the movie than you, than you found the first time around. Uh, so, highly recommended. 
Absolutely. I agree with that 100%. Like I said at the beginning, this is one of my all-time favorite pictures. And, you know, I definitely recommend that listeners go, listeners go out and see this movie if you haven't. And to also show it to a younger person as well. I think that, you know, this is something that people should see. It's even the lines of dialogue are still quoted in our pop culture today. And I think people need to see where those lines of dialogue came from. And, and you summed it up perfectly about, you know, how this movie is simply a perfect film. So... Uh, definitely, I recommend going out and seeing it. As do I. I mean, I will say this about it as well. Um, you know, and I and this is not a negative necessarily, but uh, you know, there is that whole hype of like, oh, you have to see Casablanca, you have to see Citizen Kane, you have to see this movie, that movie, because uh, because they're considered number one greatest film of all time. I feel like if you're going to sell this movie to a potential viewer, don't overhype it, don't oversell it, because then uh, a viewer will walk in, you know, expecting something uh and they and, and because they have their expectations high they may they may end up leaving disappointed because that's just not the kind of movie that they like so i wouldn't go into this movie expecting you know to uh, you know just say looking for greatness look you know just enjoy it and then see why it's great rather than just going by hearsay exactly exactly i agree 100 percent so, Chris, thank you once again for joining me today. And uh, I look forward to once again talking to you about more movies. Absolutely. Likewise. Well, that's all the time we have for Then Is Now podcast today. We hope you enjoyed our conversation about the classic motion picture Casablanca, and we hope you rediscover this movie and share it with others, particularly young people. You can send your feedback to thenisnow42 at gmail.com. You can also join in the conversation at our Facebook Then Is Now podcast group. Then Is Now podcast is a proud member of the Dorkening Podcast Network, so be sure to check out the other great shows there at thedorkening.com. You can also visit our website at havenpodcasts.com, where you'll find our sister show, The East Meets the West, in which we discuss Shaw Brothers films and spaghetti western movies. And Then Is Now is also on YouTube, so please visit youtube.com slash user slash UncleDeath1 to get the latest videos as well as other fun videos. Please subscribe to our YouTube page and also share the video versions of our podcast with your friends and get them to subscribe as well. And don't forget to go wherever you download your podcast from and leave us a great review so that more listeners can find us. We are on all the major podcasting apps, including the big three, iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. So once again, please go out and see the movie Casablanca and share it with your loved one. Class dismissed.
Of all the space bars in all the worlds, you had to rematerialize in mine. 